You're listening to Someday List, a podcast by To Do. Every month, we're sitting down with some of our favorite creatives, founders, and entrepreneurs to talk about what they're doing, how they got there, and what they want to tackle next. I'm your host, Evan Lian, and today I'm talking to Kim Pham, co-founder of Omsom, a proud, loud Asian food brand partnering with chefs to make Asian cuisine and flavors more accessible at home. The brand launched in 2020 and has seen incredible success online and recently launched nationwide in Whole Foods where you can get it on store shelves. We talk about starting the business with her sister, how Omsom's values have guided its growth and how they show up in her own life. Before we get started, if you're looking for an easy way to get organized, look no further. To Do is a thoughtfully constrained minimalist to-do list app that is as simple as paper. Because we believe that simple stays organized. To Do helps you focus on the things you need to get done so you have more time for the things that matter. Start your 30-day free trial at todo.com or download the free mobile app. On to the interview. Kim, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for that lovely intro. I'm a huge fan of To Do. I've been an OG, so I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> and we appreciate that. Omsom has been featured in Bon Appetit, Food & Wine, CNN, Forbes. If by some chance a listener has not heard of it yet, can you tell us a little bit about the company and what you do there? So Omsom is a proud and loud Asian food brand. We partner with incredible Asian American chefs all throughout the nation to craft essentially pantry staples that make it super easy for you to cook restaurant quality Asian dishes in under 20 minutes. So literally you just take one of our little packets, you rip four and you fire it up with any fave kind of protein or veggies that you might have access to. It's run by myself and my sister, Vanessa. We are both first-gen Vietnamese Americans and daughters of refugees. And the company was really born from our lived experiences as third culture kids. And we really just wanted to build, you know, just a kind of rowdy in-your-face brand that would be a middle finger to all of the tropes that flatten, silence, and erase Asian Americans, really. And so, yeah, at Omsom, I handle all things brand, creative, content, community, so all the right brain stuff basically. <laughs> we are going to circle back to Amsom, but I did want to ask you about this. On your website, you refer to yourself as an ex-warped tour kid who found community on Zanga and Tumblr. You speak in my language. Uh, and a full-time <laughs> human of the internet. For me, it was like Neopets, RuneScape, yes. the tail end of Zanga, but lived on Tumblr. Uh, what were some of your early formative experiences being a human of the internet? Yeah. So I think a little bit of background here. So I'm the daughter of Vietnamese refugees. I'm also the oldest of two. I'm also the first in my family to go through the American school system. So I was, I really felt different in many ways. I, we also grew up in a town that was 98% white, just south of Boston. And so I never really fit in, in all of the ways. Like I was like an alt kid. I didn't know at the time, but I was queer. I just didn't find belonging in real life. And so the internet was my escape. And so my father is a software engineer, so I got access to the internet, untethered access to the internet at a very young age and realized like, oh, my people are like Reddit weirdos. There are people writing long form essays on LiveJournal. There are other scene emo kids on Tumblr. And was it always the healthiest thing for like a 10, 12 year old kid to have access to? Maybe not, but it really gave me my love for the internet and my love for like subculture and sub communities. And I hold that like internet weirdo thing really close to my chest because I feel like so much of my creativity and my experiences have come from just like seeing internet stuff. The internet's obviously changed a lot since then and centralized around these big social media platforms. But I'm curious, where do you go online these days to find delight and joy? 
Oh, wow. I mean, TikTok first and foremost, the sheer amount of time that I spend on TikTok is absurd. I spend a lot of time on Twitter and then I go to more like specific subreddits or sites or platforms that are specific to the communities I'm a part of. For example, with Kink and Fetish, I spend time on FetLife or BDSMler because I find that folks who are really about that life tend to find more content or niche specific platforms. And so, yeah, I just, I find inspiration from a lot of different places. I do want to clarify being a user of to do is not a prerequisite of being on this podcast, but I want to read you this tweet from that you had sent out on November 4th, 2021. (laughs) Uh, You tweeted another year of to do being the longest relationship in my life. Who needs partners when you can have software subscriptions? Am I right? (laughs) But as a founder, I imagine you have a never ending list of responsibilities and things you have to get done. How do you organize and prioritize your day? and the things you need to do for the business? And what else is in your sort of day-to-day web tool belt, so to speak? Yeah. First off, love y'all. I I think (laughs) I found y'all, I think when I was in college, I don't even remember how, but I just wanted something super simple that I didn't have to think about. And I got really, I'm not a structured person. I'm not a structured thinker. I'm definitely a creative's creative. And Mm -hmm. so these like hyper built out tools were just not helpful to me. Like I didn't need all the timers and all the things and the colors. I was like, I literally just want like a to-do list. And so yeah, (laughs) I stand, um, not product placement. Y'all clearly did not pay me. I'm just, I'm obsessed. (laughs) Um, yeah, my day, how do I structure my days? I mean, I'm really grateful that I get to work on the creative side of OMSOM. So much of what I do is constantly like brand thinking, content thinking, storyboarding, writing scripts, things like that. And so my toolkit is pretty straightforward, like Asana for project management. I use my inbox and to-do pretty much as my to-do list. Slack, Notion for more robust scripting out or storyboarding. We have templates that we've built out on Google Drive. Like it's pretty straightforward. We're a very lean and scrappy team. So it's literally just me, one content associate and a couple interns that do everything on the creative and content side. So Because we're such a small operation, we're allowed to hack tools for our little team, but it works. And I think some of the magic is because we're not making everything efficient and scalable to death. There's a Mm -hmm. quote that like, there's no silver bullet to brand and creative and content. Like you have to do it somewhat manually to capture some of the magic in the early days. So yeah, that's our little hacky setup. I've heard you say in interviews that Amsam is a brand that really started in the early 90s because it is you and your sister, Vanessa. I might be projecting a bit, but I think food is often how first or second gen kids, third culture kids begin to reckon with or reconcile their relationship with their culture and heritage as adults. What was your relationship with Vietnamese culture and food growing up and has it changed over the years? Oh, great, great question. Yeah, I think my relationship with food growing up in the beginning, it was so riddled with other shit. Like when I think about every day, my family would, my parents both work full-time jobs. Vanessa and I would come home from school. We would do homework at the counter. And then my mom would get home from work and literally cook a three-course Vietnamese meal. And then my dad would come home from work. And it did not matter how late we finished homework or how late my parents got home. It was really important to my parents that we all had dinner together every night. No, like sitting in front of the TV or half the family eating half, like it was really important to them. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, this is so tedious. And also like, why can't we be like normal quote unquote families Uh who my friends are allowed to eat in front of the TV or they're allowed to like grab the dinner and go. And also why do we have to eat this type of food? Like I remember feeling deep and immense shame around the fact that sometimes in my house smelled like fish sauce or I remember my parents would boil pork belly 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, my white American friends don't eat this much fat. And there was so much wrapped up in my relationship with food and Vietnamese food in particular, because it was coupled with my shame of being different and of being other and also of being a daughter of refugees and the way that my family grew up. And so I think for a long time, I mean, I love Vietnamese food. And I always have loved Vietnamese food, but I definitely mm. think my public or external facing relationship with it was quite fraught. And it wasn't until I left for university, I left home at 17 and came to New York City where I went to NYU that I just began missing my mom's food so much. Yeah. Like dorm food sucks. And yes, you're in New York City, but I was a student, so I couldn't afford to eat out. And yes, there's a very big Asian population at NYU. But, um, most of that population is East Asian or South Asian. There was very few Southeast Asian students that I went to school with. And that's when I started to realize, not only do I miss this food, I miss the language. I miss kind of the small cultural things that I had totally taken for granted and frankly grew ashamed of because of my my own scarcity and frankly white supremacy, mm. I think that was a real turning point to like, okay, wow, food is actually, like you said, the first step that I turn to when I want to re-engage with my identity. When someone's like, okay, what does it mean for you to be Vietnamese? I'm like, let's go get Vietnamese food and let's dig into it. That feels mm. like oftentimes the easiest way to begin to like, yeah, step back into that place. And so I, I think Vanessa had a very similar journey in perhaps slightly different ways. And so by the time 2016, 2017 rolled around, we're like, I think we want to build something in food. As you come to the realization that you are missing these things in your life, do you engage, do, you know, are you asking your parents for recipes? Like, how did you go about this journey of discovery? Yeah. I mean, one turned to the internet. That's a classic Kim fan thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and started finding blogs and recipes. And this was, gosh, I was, tw this was 2010, 2011. So Andrea Nguyen was like my North star and she's still OG Viet recipe queen. So started finding blogs, finding recipes, calling my mom for recipes, which bless any Asian <laughs> kid will know trying to ask a parent for recipes, like the mm -hmm. least helpful. And then NYU actually did have a Vietnamese Students Association. I think it was probably 10 people big for a university that's well over 100,000 students. Wow, yeah. But I was I joined the e-board and just tried to find ways to regrow in many ways that connection to my culture and to my language. So I started like reading Vietnamese again, like watching silly Vietnamese YouTube shows just to keep that fire alive. I find myself doing the same. I'm Chinese American. It doesn't even have to be Chinese food, but I find solace yeah. in Japanese food and, and Vietnamese food and whatever is like close and on Uber Eats, I, I will seek that out <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> That's so real. It's yeah. so funny. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. When we were younger and we would travel, like it, it would not matter if we were like in Spain or something. My parents would be like, oh my God, I want Asian food. And I used to be so embarrassed by that. I was like, oh my God, we're in Spain. What are you doing? Mm. You can eat Asian food anytime. And now as an adult, I'm like, I get it. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I love Asian food and I'm always trying to eat Asian food. And, and you're right. It's not even just specifically Vietnamese. There's something comforting about broadly these flavor profiles, although there's so much diversity and multitudes in our flavors. There is something unique about some of these flavor profiles that just feel like home in so many ways. And one thing I really admire about Amsam is that you all have used the platform that you have to lead conversations around how we talk and think about cultural cuisine, whether it be the ethnic island, the grocery store, the phrase or term authenticity when we're referring to cultural restaurants and food that's available. How much reflection did that take between you and your sister as you were coming up with the idea for Amsam? It's funny that you asked this question. 
I get asked this occasionally and I never fully know how to answer it because, and I think a lot of other founders might feel the same way. People see the end result and think of it as, oh, this is a strategic, smart business decision. Because Kim, it's allowed Amsam to insert itself into conversations that maybe it wouldn't normally be, or wow, it's given you cultural resonance in a new way, or wow, how relevant, right? A lot of these conversations are happening on a national dialogue. For me, it's such an organic, natural extension of Vanessa and I's individuals. We weren't like, let's talk about authenticity and MSG and the ethnic aisle because that's a hot topic and people are going to want to share that. It's literally like, hey, these are the things that we care about as individuals. And we've gone a lifetime now of people not caring about these things or saying that we are overreacting or that these things aren't important to think about. But now, thankfully, for some reason, Amzam and Vanessa and I and our team have been given this incredible platform. Of course, we would talk about these things. And so it feels very much like every single word that you see on our website and our content largely comes from me. I pro- I still do most of the copywriting at Amazon. Mm-hmm. And we talk about things because it's what we care about. Like they're yes, it's like business decisions and brand building and like also hashtag capitalism. Everything is, you know, in service of, <laughs> of building this brand. But really when I think about those issues that you're talking about, the tropes that we try and deconstruct, the stereotypes that we try and tear down the education that we try and do around Asian American, not just food, but also culture and identity. All of that is because Vanessa and I feel very strongly about third culture, Asian American identity. I think Mm -hmm. we're in this really interesting time in society where I think our parents or maybe our grandparents' generation were really keen on being identified as like Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese. And now we're moving to this next iteration of Asian American identity where Asian American actually means something. And that phrase was obviously also born from solidarity with Black American communities. And so if the very root of the name is equity and justice, then we have to honor that through what we do at Amsam. So it feels like both a burden and a privilege in many ways. And I'm really grateful. I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful for it. It's the coolest thing to get to work on as a creative and as someone who has cared about social justice for a very long time. This interview is brought to you by To-Do. You're juggling a lot and you don't know where to start. We've all been there. And that's why we made To-Do with the core belief that less is more. To-Do is the minimalist to-do list app to ease your cognitive burdens. We are the most refreshing task manager in a sea of monster energy drinks. No pings, no feeds, no comments, just you and the things you need to get done in a simple, intuitive interface. Use code SOMEDAYLIST for 20% off when you subscribe at TEUXDEUX.com. Back to the interview. It is incredibly resonant, and I think that can be seen in the success of your company. They're important conversations and delicate ones. Who are your sounding boards as you think through and work through these conversations? My team and my community. Nothing is born in isolation, nothing like pops out of my brain. And that's what the final product is. My team is entirely either women or people of color, large, vast majority of whom are Asian Americans. And it's not just East Asians folks. When I think about my content team, we have a Hong Kong Chinese person, a Cambodian person, I'm Vietnamese, a mixed race Korean person. And so we really try, like, you know, we're, we're never ever going to be quote unquote representative. I think that term really sets anyone up to fail, but mm-hmm. I think we do try where possible to seek diversity in our inputs. But we really are like 
of and by and for the community. I like spend a lot of time in Asian American Twitter. I spend a lot of time in Asian American Reddit, subtle Asian traits, like all of the mm-hmm. Facebook groups. There's so much happening. There's so much richness here. And you're right. They are very delicate, sensitive subjects. So we try and speak in our lane. We try and make sure that we use language that isn't assertive in the sense of this is the only way to view things. And we try and collaborate with creators, influencers, partners, nonprofits, other orgs who have more expertise than we do where we can. But it's, yeah, it's, it's lifelong work in many ways. And it's work that doesn't stop after 5 or 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Like I'm constantly on TikTok, I'm constantly on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, not trying to find ideas. You know, it's just things that I care about as a person. And then literally during our content planning meetings, I'm like, hey, like what's been going on with Asian America? Where can we speak out? For example, uh, with a Mahjong. I don't know if you remember that Mahjong. (laughs) (laughs) And we're like, oh my God, yeah, like crap. And actually as a brand, we should take up space in that conversation because we are a brand building in an Asian American space. And so we actually have something to say here and we maybe have a unique perspective. And then also knowing when to not take space and instead amplify or give resources to other folks. So yeah, it's it's really delicate work that I think can really only be done if you care. Like I literally can't imagine doing this, the level of emotional labor that me and my team do. I cannot imagine doing this unless we like really had personal passions and investments in these communities. And it comes through, like you said, Amazon was not born out of... You know, let's say, opportunity of the moment. <laughs> yeah. But this is really the values that you care about. The company launched in 2020. You and Vanessa had both quit your jobs to work on it full-time. Did you have any sort of mental checklist of what needed to be right with the business idea before you allowed yourself to lean fully into it? Or mm. were you just ready to pursue the opportunity? Oh, that, this was such a messy period. I wish there was like a super clean, sexy story. <laughs> I've been working in startups my whole life. I love taking companies from zero to one. I live and breathe risk. So I was ready like since the beginning. I think Vanessa being the left brain Harvard alumna, ex-Bain consultant needed a bit more time and comfort. But we started working on it like nights and weekends. I had left a job and venture and was consulting and being nomadic. And she was on year two of management consulting. And she was like, I want to die. This is so bad. (laughs) And frankly, also after the 2016 election, her and I both felt personal moral emergencies to make the world a better place, even if just in a small way and in our lane. Looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know what we were doing for six months. We were just literally throwing shit at a wall to see what stuck because like you said, Amsam was on a business that was like, ooh, these trends are going to intersect here and there's white space and we could be the first mover. It was none of that. It was literally just, what are all the things that we care about from those passions? What could potentially be interesting? And so we broadly landed on like Asian food, Asian culture. We started doing tons of consumer research and surveys by tons. I mean, Vanessa and I sending out type forms into Facebook groups. I think we got over 500 survey answers. Of those 500, we actually got on the phone with 100 of them. And we're just like, talk to me about how you interact with Asian food. How often do you eat it? Do you order it online? Do you go to the restaurants, take out? What kind of Asian food? Like, literally had no idea what we were looking for. It was literally just, let's just collect input. And then from those 100 phone calls, we actually went into the homes of 50 people, many of whom are still Amsam fans to this day, which is so cool. (laughs) But we were just like, hey, can you cook us Asian food? And let's just watch. And we literally would take notes. And through all of that really messy, frankly, customer research, 
we realized a couple of things, which now I say it out loud. You're like, no shit, Kim, you didn't need a whole summer of doing this, but you know, <laughs> you have to take the scenic route. The things that we learned were that one doesn't matter if you're Asian or you're not Asian, but surprise, surprise, everyone loves Asian food. People mm-hmm. like eat it regularly, but folks face a lot of barriers when it comes to cooking Asian food in their home. So that's why folks don't do it as much. So if you're Asian, it's look, I love these flavors. I grew up on them but I don't live close to Chinatown or my quote, quote, ethnic supermarket or my mom's recipes just are not helpful. And so I don't even, I just don't do it because it's not going to be as good. And then for non-Asian folks, it's, I literally don't know the difference between dark soy sauce, light soy sauce, sweet soy sauce. I have no idea how to begin to get these ingredients. And then even when I do get them, I use a tablespoon and it sits in the back of my fridge for months until mm-hmm. I throw it away. And so from there, Vanessa and I were like, okay, this is really interesting. More people would eat Asian food, but we just need to lower the barrier. And so that's the starting kind of nuggets of how Amsam came to life. But yeah, in the beginning, there was no, all right, we need to like have this beta fully proven out and then we're going to go on it. It was so intuitive based. And at one point her and I were just like, I think we're onto something. And that was right around when we did actually launch a beta. And so we're like, we, I think we need to fundraise for this though. And you can't do fundraising half-assed. Mm-hmm. And so then we kicked off one of the hardest uh, periods of the company life, which was that initial fundraise. But that's because we knew that we were onto something. Had you done consulting in the CPG space or the food and bev space at all? So my past background was all in startups on community and brand side. And then I spent four years in venture capitals because I just really wanted to see what successful startups look like. Mm-hmm. And then when I was consulting, it was because I was nomadic and I was consulting venture funds okay. on the work that I had been doing at that previous role. So Literally zero CPG experience. I had spent some time at Blue Apron, so was like really interested in food and love food. Also was like very involved in the food program at NYU. But Vanessa was like the OG consultant. She actually at Bain was focused on e-commerce and CPG. So she actually had more experience than I did. But we quickly learned that none of it really mattered because building <laughs> a CPG in 2020 during a pandemic is completely unique and unprecedented. So learning curve has consistently been vertical. Amsam did start out direct to consumer, but recently launched nationwide at Whole Foods, which is awesome. I just picked them up this weekend. Yay! <laughs> um, one thing I love is that rather than gatekeep the process of how you did it, you started this whole video series of URL to IRL to tell the story of launching at Whole Foods and all the business decisions that went into it. Why is that sort of transparency so important to Amsam? Yeah. First off, like rising tides raise all boats. Like mm-hmm. I have accepted in my heart that if Amsam dies tomorrow, I'm perfectly okay and happy with it. Like not happy, maybe not happy with it. I'll be okay with it because I am so proud of the work that we've done. We've already achieved everything I could possibly want. And I, therefore I think it's my job as well to lift others as we climb up. But there was a very real conversation. I remember when I showed Vanessa some of the early scripts as the children of immigrants, scarcity is very hard to unlearn. And she was like, damn, like, do we really want to share these insights? Like we paid a lot of money to run these focus groups. And now we're just like giving it out here for free that putting your photo on your packaging makes a big difference. You can just expect now every brand in that aisle is going to have their founder photos on it. And there was a moment where we were like, damn, should we keep that? And we made the decision to not do that because we're like, okay, pull ourselves all the way out, take 30 steps back or look 30 years in the future what decision will we have been proud of? And it seems so dramatic because I'm talking about a fucking Instagram video, but Rising Tides Raise Little Boats is truly like one of our company values. And company values are not just words on a paper. Like you got to reference that shit when you're making big decisions. And, mm-hmm. and so that transparency is born out of love for 
other founders, not just Asian Americans, but other founders of color who I know have gone through this, are going through this, and will go through this. And so, yeah, I think that's a reflection of us just trying to live our values as much as possible. We're never perfect, but we're trying. And then also, I think our community really enjoys it. Like, I do want to show the world that building a brand like ours is harder. Mm. It's harder. Like, we're choosing the hard fucking path every time. And some days it's like the coolest thing to be able to, you know, obviously showcase this and show it on social and get our community's feedback. And other days I'm just like, damn, I wish I didn't care. Like, I wish, like, I, I wish I didn't have the same level of like heart and tie to it because then I would be able to make decisions that probably would be cheaper and faster and make my life easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going to choose it. There's no other way for us to build this brand than by living our values. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like General Mills probably doesn't have to do this this <laughs> uh, level of reflection and self-discovery. I'm curious now that you have crossed nationwide distribution at Whole Foods off your someday list. Is there another big milestone that you're eyeing or working towards? I would love to continue to expand into like more stores. Mm-hmm. Like I think that is really kind of Omsom's next frontier is, you know, we have this internet street cred. We have this really engaged, arguably cult-like community, mostly <laughs> of Asian Americans and other BIPOC communities who are like, fuck yeah, I'm some doing cool shit. But for us to really become a household name, we have to cross that kind of next halo, let's say, and that's non-Asian Americans who maybe have never seen us on Instagram and maybe aren't even thinking about these issues regularly and are just in their store. And I'm really excited to see how some of our really bespoke, very manual brand street cred. I wonder how it will scale with us. And so, yeah, I'd say continuing to get Omsom in front of Americans in increasingly accessible ways. Community is a bit of a buzzword that is thrown around, but Omsom does a really great job of building intentionally for a community and inviting others to partake in it. How would you challenge other founders or business people or brands Mm. to rethink about what community is? Ooh, oh, that's such a great question. So my past life has always been in community. I've been a community builder my whole life online and in person at NYU and in Europe. I think the reason community is such a buzzword is because it's used to largely describe any group of people now. Mm-hmm. But I think the true heart of community is like shared values and like a shared sense of belonging and understanding and perspective on the world. And so what I push founders to think about is as they're starting to define who their community is, what their community stands for, et cetera, the way that I like to push people's thinking is, okay, as you think about your community, think less about who they are. Because I think we try and go into like demographic type of information. Like, all right, they're 25 to 35, millennial, blah, 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 right, Mm -hmm. whatever. But I'm like, what does someone tell the world about themselves when they are a part of your community? And I think that reframe, that question really starts to make it clear. What the fuck does your community stand for? Like, what does someone say about the world when they're like, I stand blah, 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 Mm right? What does that say? And I hope that for the community at Omsom, it's okay. Well, I stand Omsom. Why why do you stand Omsom? Chances are they probably love Asian food and Asian flavors and Asian cooking. But I think more importantly, are looking really intentionally and thoughtfully at identity, culture, at language in a way that perhaps few other brands in the CPG space are able to say. And I'm really proud of that. I'm so proud of that. I see it come to life. Like when we throw events, when people say they ride for Homsom, there's a shared understanding of what you value. And that's really special. And so I would just push brands to be like, 
what does what does someone say about the world about themselves when they stand you and when they rep you and really dig into that and flush it out in ways that aren't just obvious flush it out in visual and creative ways that are beyond just the surface level yeah sorry that is so like abstract yeah, i love that yeah <laughs> that's great yeah i feel like people tend to default to that describing community as purely demos Amsam is this unapologetically proud and loud asian brand and you embody that in every aspect of your life you're an outspoken sex positivity advocate and bdsm educator i'm sure there's quote unquote traditional business acumen that would tell you to to maybe keep that part of your life to yourself but you never shy away from it. How has that changed how you show up in your personal life and as a founder? Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey as a founder. So basically around the time I started Omsam was when I also discovered and truly started to explore BDSM and kink in a real and intentional way. You know, when I look back, I'm like, oh, wow, that's coincidental. And I'm like, no, girl, it's not. <laughs> you know, like, I really think that as Vanessa and I were building this proud, loud brand, Omsam is rooted in the Vietnamese phrase, Omsam, which means rowdy or rambunctious. It also was a really natural time for us to take that lens back into ourselves. And I don't try and say that Omsam is a founder-led brand. I don't ever want to be a founder-led brand. But Vanessa and I are a very big part of the Omsam story completely unintentionally. And so we really felt that we had to honor Amsam's mission through a true and relentless commitment to self. Vanessa has done that in her own ways as well. Like she has also been in her own incredible personal journey. And for me, it was absolutely rooted in what are the parts of me that I have maybe hidden or dialed down because I wanted to be more palatable or I wanted to be more likable or understandable even. And through that kind of uncovering of self, did I realize that, oh, damn, I kind of owe it to my younger self to be proud and loved. Someone actually asked me this the other day. They're like, you know, people are judging you, right? There are probably investors who mm-hmm. look at your shit online and maybe say that you're not professional or people who might see your TikTok and think, wow, it's really weird that a venture backed founder from a great college education, great quote unquote pedigree, whatever is talking about these things, like there's going to be judgment there. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that, but I'm down to take the L in the short term because for every one of those judgments, which I can't control, the DMs that I get from Asian women or Asian people in general or folks who are like, hey, I like was really ashamed about this part of myself, but you've made it feel safe. That is infinitely more rewarding to me than getting validation from systems and structures that I don't really want to continue to support. It's a privilege though. I will say that I'm really lucky I get to do this because I have a platform and I also pay my own bills at the end of the day because I run my own business. This would be much harder if I were in another system. And so I have to do something with that privilege. So I'm going to keep doing this. I also think in the same way it's brought me judgment. It's also brought me community. The people who ride with me now see me fully in ways that I've never been fully seen in my life. And that is, again, such a gift and a privilege. So I really want to just honor it. But yeah, it's always easy. I know there, I mean, every time I post a TikTok, I'm like, oh, damn, like, what if someone said this to my aunt, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, yeah. like my super traditional Vietnamese auntie, but it's something bigger than me. It's, I feel personally. And so I'm, I want to keep doing it until it doesn't feel authentic. 
like you had said earlier, it's not really work that, you know, you can clock out at five yeah. or 6 p.m. You do so much work in facilitating conversations around culture, around feminism, sex positivity, and creating spaces for people to learn, which mm-hmm. is a tremendous privilege, responsibility, and an act of service. Mm-hmm. How do you practice self-care to protect your own creative and emotional well-being through all of that? Yeah. Real talk, Evan, I don't think I do a good job of it. And I think many first-time founders will say it's really hard to draw boundaries, Uh especially when it feels like your company is so closely tied to your identity and sense of self-worth. And especially with Ensemble, like literally proud and loud was like pulled from Vanessa and I as individuals. So I definitely struggle with it. So do as I say, not as I do. But I would say that more recently, I think it's one drawing boundaries. And it's gotten to the point where drawing boundaries for me is not just about work time. But it's about emotional, mental bandwidth. Because I notice that, okay, maybe I end work, quote unquote, at 7 p.m. But then I'm sitting on the couch. And I'm like, oh, let me just like poke around on Asian Twitter and see what's going on. And like, that's important too. And it's hard when your work is so closely tied to your identity. But I've started to just do things for enjoyment that have nothing to do with OMSOM. Mm-hmm. So it's like going to raves with my friends. I've started to like do that again with an Asian rave crew. Yes, but <laughs> we're not sitting around talking about Asian American identity all yeah. the time. Cooking for the sake of it, again, not an ensemble dish, not something that I can put on social media or film, just like literally just for myself. And then also all of my work and content creation around BDSM and kink has nothing to do with ensemble. And it's such a great way for me to continue to sharpen my creative skills as a content creator and storyteller without doing anything that I can repurpose or like use yeah. for ensemble. So that's been really nice, honestly, and has been a really strong creative outlet. But yeah, it's just trying to find ways to like, find joy that have nothing to do with my work. <laughs> yeah. You co-founded this company with your sister. How do you protect the sibling relationship with it? How do you take time away yeah. to connect as siblings? Yeah. Oh, it's great. Great question. I'm so lucky because Vanessa and I are like, even before Hamsam, we've been best friends. She's literally just such a like, unique and profound person. I'm so grateful for and definitely starting Omsom has added on like a new layer or maybe we've entered a new season of our relationship. Mm-hmm. What we did in the beginning when we first started working together, it was like we had to confront many of our demons. There was, I think we were maybe six months in when Vanessa was like, let's go to a coffee shop and talk this shit out. And I was like, what do you mean? I think everything's good. And she's like, no, you and I are projecting a ton of old narratives on each other that are rooted from trauma in our younger days. There are outdated views that we have about one another from high school. Let's like look at this and talk about it. And once we were able to do that, it really cleared the room for us to see each other as like real fleshed out human beings. Not like Kim, my older sister, who's really scary and judgmental and not Vanessa, my little sister that I have to protect and judge. You know, like we just started to try and see one another as human beings. I think that was the first thing when we first started our journey. And now I think, geez, two, three years in, it's been a lot of really clear boundary setting that is rooted from a desire to communicate with honesty and transparency. So it's not, hey, fuck you. I don't want to talk to you tonight. It's, hey, my partner is visiting from San Francisco. It's 9 p.m. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Let's talk tomorrow morning. And me being like, oh, you're right. You know, like it's boundary setting to preserve and invest in our relationship Mm -hmm. has been really important because with family, it's so easy to have no boundaries. And I think her and I have had to realize that like, one, this, this relationship is the most important thing to us. And if this business succeeds at the expense of our relationship, that's a failure. Mm-hmm. And two, 
you have to continue to feed and invest in this relationship in a real way that isn't avoidance, which I'm the queen of. I'm trying to work <laughs> on it. Um, but it's really like clear and honest communication. It's so hard. <laughs> yeah. I love that way of phrasing it. It's a new season of your life. As you think about Amsam, where it's at today, what are you focusing your energy on in this next season? I think the next season of Amsam is we got the zero to one part of our journey down. And I'm really so proud of who we've been and how we have shown up in that zero to one. But zero to one is very much defined by like scrappy community brand building. It's capturing this lightning in a bottle. And I think miraculously, Amazon has managed to do that. When I think about this next season, it's like one to 10. Mm -hmm. And that's really scary to me, honestly. I've never worked for a company larger than 20 people. I'm definitely a startup girl. And now we're starting to grow up a little bit, right? Like our team is getting bigger. We're taking on more investors. We're expanding into new distribution channels. Like I have to grow up in many ways also as a founder. I'm learning how to manage for the first time I've never managed before. So there's a lot of newness and learning that I'm going to have to do. And not just me as an individual, but also the company. Again, like what we've been so good at so far is this like super heart forward cultural storytelling. And now we're like, what does that look like when someone has 10 seconds to understand what we are on a Target store shelf? How do we capture some of that awesome magic and quote unquote scale it? Like, ooh, that's a scary word. Yeah. So I think that's the next season is figuring out like, how do we never, ever lose our heart and our soul and all the things that people love us for? while also growing up as a business and becoming more savvy about distribution and becoming more savvy about fundraising and becoming more savvy about team management and growing it. It's definitely a scary challenge. I'm not going to lie. And sometimes I'm like, are Vanessa and I the ones to do this? But I think we are. (laughs) I think we are. And, and, And if we're not, that's okay. We're just trying our best and that's all that matters. Yeah. And if anyone's up to the challenge, I think you are. Um, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) I just want to say as an introvert, as a middle child and a third culture kid, I'm pretty well practiced at taking up as little space as possible. So I really appreciate the space that you create. If our listeners want to learn more about Amsam or you, where can they find you online? For sure. So you can find Amsam just at Amsam on Instagram, at WeAreAmsam on TikTok and Amsam.com. If you want to find me in particular, you can just find me at kimfam.org that has all my socials and at Kim of the internet on all platforms. Oh, this has been a blast. Yay! Thank you for tuning into another episode of Someday List. We'll have new episodes for you every month, so make sure to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or follow along on social media at to-do app on Instagram or at to-do on Twitter. This podcast is produced by To Do. Our theme music is composed by Evan Laybourne. I want to thank our guest Kim Pham again for coming on. And of course, thank you, the listener. We'll catch you next time.